The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by director Hiro Murai. Hiro has made music videos for A Tribe Called Quest, Flying Lotus, Childish Gambino, Earl Sweatshirt, FKA Twigs, and more. But in recent years, he's found his calling on television, where he's directed seminal episodes of hit shows like Barry, Station Eleven, and most frequently, Atlanta. Alongside star and creator Donald Glover, Hero has been a driving force on the Emmy-winning program, which tells the story of two cousins trying to make it in the rap world of Atlanta. After a brief hiatus, the show has just begun its fourth and final season, as Earn, Paperboy, Darius, and Van return to their hometown. Here's a clip from the trailer. What's so great in Atlanta that you can't just leave it behind? Goodness. I watch Criminal Minds, and I know when someone's up to something twisted. Oh, this feels illegal as hell. If you'd like to watch, the fourth and final season of Atlanta airs Thursdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on FX. It then streams the very next day 
on Hulu. Now, since debuting in 2016, Atlanta has routinely upended what we've come to expect from serialized television. It breaks genre and format with ease. It plays with surreality the way David Lynch might if he ever found himself down in Atlanta. And it examines race in America with more nuance and complexity than just about anything else on television. And through these six years, Hero has been Atlanta's primary director, with over 20 episodes to his name. When we sat down this week, we talked about the legacy of the show, the homecoming that is this final season, the ways in which his directorial style has evolved in recent years, the filmmakers that most influenced him, his childhood in Tokyo before immigrating to Los Angeles, how he found his way in America, and a whole lot more. This is Hiro Murai. Hero. Hi. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, Sam. How you feeling? I'm good. I'm a little, little tired. You know, I'm on a lot of antibiotics right now, so I'm a little loopy. I apologize if I sound loopy. That's great for interviews. Yeah, is way. that right? A little bit loopy. Okay. Yeah, it'll turn into a Quincy Jones interview really quick. Love it. How does it feel to uh, be here? To be in this uh, studio? Yeah. It's a little alarming, you know? Uh <laughs> I've heard your voice so much on the podcast that it's really weird to see your face and the voice coming out of your face. I feel like I've disappointed you. No, not at all. Not at all. That is not what I'm saying. (laughs) It's just, uh, I'm just so used to the voice. I so appreciate you being here. After some pauses in production, a couple false starts, a global pandemic, Mm -hmm. the fourth and final season of Atlanta is finally upon us. You've long said that each season of the show is a reflection of where we are in our lives. That's true for the writers, the actors, and myself included. Which parts of you and the crew are being reflected in these first two episodes? You know, this is the first time we've been back in the city of Atlanta since season two. You know, and it's the first time we've been back in the summer since season one feels like homecoming in a lot of ways, but also knowing that this is the last season, it feels like we're kind of looking back on what the show was and who we were when we started making the show in season one, which feels like eons ago at this point. And so I, I think there's a lot of sort of nostalgia. I also think we're allergic to nostalgia as a, as a collective. So we're kind of fighting with that sort of toxic impulse to be nostalgic. So I don't know. It's It feels like us trying to figure out who we are now as opposed to where we were before but also sort of appreciating that we're kind of back home. It's funny, it's like you've gone back home both inside the show and also outside of the show in making it. Mm -hmm. And yet it's a little like a kid who just graduated from college (laughs) going back to his hometown. Yeah, yeah. And so you're kind of embarrassed of who you were when you grew up there. But also, you know, you're just not the same person, you know, and in some ways it feels like home, but you also, you just can't go back to that place that you were in before. When you started making this season and everyone's back together after all these years, Mm -hmm. what did that feel like? It was really lovely. It was so also so strange because, you know, this is coming off of two years of, you know, the pandemic and none of us had seen any people until that point. So... 
we all flew out to London and we all started hanging out together. None of us had seen each other for three years. And it was so surreal because it was so familial and it just everybody kind of clicked into their their dynamic. But if we were also in London, <laughs> which, you know, we'd never been to together. Again, familiar, but very foreign about it too, you know, but we're also just so starved for human connection that I feel like we got really tight, even tighter, just, just being in a foreign country together. You said recently, Atlanta is like a therapy session for everybody who makes it. Hmm. And that got me wondering, in this final season, if it is a kind of therapy, what were you trying to work out? Well, I think everybody works out something different. I think Donald and Steve Glover, to me, this whole show is them unpacking their trauma of growing up in Atlanta. For us as a collective, I think, you know, I think we started making the first two seasons from a very punk place. We didn't want to be accepted. We didn't. We thought we were going to get canceled. You really believe that? I do. I'd never directed a TV show until the pilot. Mm -hmm. And so when we first started, Donald <laughs> came up to us and said, I don't think we're going to make it past season one. So let's just do all the things that we want to do in a TV show while they let us. And maybe, you know, that was just us being scared and saying that to ourselves so we feel okay about failure. <laughs> but, you know, it, it kind of freed us up. And so when we started making it, it just became us just sort of pushing back against what TV was supposed to be, what we thought TV should be. You know, in the course of the run, they just sort of people really responded to it. So there was this weird, alarming feeling where we thought we were shooting spitballs from the back of the class. And then all of a sudden, you know, we were like class valedictorians or something. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think season four for us was sort of like maturing, you know, growing up and then just sort of like being a little more introspective and being a little more genuine and honest with ourselves and see if we can just be grownups a little bit more. Figuring out how to be the valedictorian. Yeah. I don't know if I if that feels comfortable, but but basically, yes. I, I've learned in the process of researching anything that feels vaguely egotistical, you are not comfortable <laughs> with. Yeah, that's probably true. Although you're not comfortable with it, Donald did tweet and say that the only thing that can touch Atlanta is the Sopranos. Mm. When he tweeted that, I'm imagining you waking up in the morning, drinking your cup of coffee. Did that inspire you or terrify you? Both, honestly. You know, I mean, here's the thing. Like, yes, I don't like projecting any sort of ego or telling people to consume the show in any way that they don't want to. But also, I'm incredibly proud of the show and incredibly proud of all the people who worked on it. And I think we are making something great, you know? And so when he says something like that, I know he's coming from a place of like, us as a collective, we're doing something and he's proud of the team. And so simultaneously, I'm like, it makes my heart grow. But also I'm like, I understand from an outsider perspective, it's like, oh, this show has to be really good now. <laughs> so it's, you know, I start sweating and uh, it's alarming. You said that you believe this show is Donald and Steven working out some childhood trauma. What was the thing or what is the thing you've been working out? You know, anything you make, you, you just kind of have to put yourself into. And, and whether it's intuitive or not, you just sort of kind of slot it into your sort of perspective of the world, you know. And I don't think I was doing it consciously, but especially in the first season, I think my way into Donald's perspective and the character's perspective on the show was the idea of being an outsider in a space that you didn't belong in. And, you know, so I, I very much kind of took the show in from the character Earn's perspective of 
being thrown into this world that he clearly didn't belong in. He was kind of a bridge between two worlds. You know, he was a Princeton dropout uh, living in a predominantly sort of white space and bridging a gap between Paperboy, who is a local drug dealer slash rapper. And there's something about that that felt extremely intuitive to me. And I don't know if that's because, uh, I don't know, you know, I'm an immigrant kid. I've always felt like I was bridging spaces. And so that outsider perspective felt like a really intuitive place to kind of insert myself. Now that we're in this final season of the show and the characters have returned to Atlanta, in the season premiere, there's an extended scene set in a barbecue spot where Paperboy finds himself going on a scavenger hunt assembled by a rapper who recently died. Now, that sounds like something I just made up, (laughs) but uh, it's exactly the kind of thing people have come to expect from you and this show. Should we take a look? Sure. This is from the season four premiere of Atlanta on FX. Oh, hey. What's up, man? What you want? I heard y'all got something called a zoo pie. Zoo pie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it is, so, you know. No, actually, I heard it in a song. One super. Hey, yo, man, I ain't heard this one before. Did you know Blue Blood? Hey, man, is this a scavenger hunt? Is is Blue Blood still alive? Who's Blue Blood? Bet. Hey, man, you keep a change. People always talk about the surreal, absurdist elements of Atlanta. And yet it's interesting those elements exist almost entirely on the periphery of the show. And that made me think about this quote from the late Jean-Luc Godard. He said, The cinema should not consist of showing what's happening, but rather in showing what's not happening. Love that. Do you subscribe to that philosophy? Yeah, I do. I, I think so much of filmmaking is about choosing what's inside the frame, what's outside the frame. In a lot of ways what's not inside the frame is just more potent, you know? And so I I think what you're supposed to do is imply that a whole world exists outside of that frame. And you're really leaning into the imagination of the audience to fill it in. And so, especially when it comes to sort of the surreal aspects of the show, rather than being explicit about it, I think it's just more powerful to to imply and, and let people sort of perceive it themselves and question what they perceive, you know? The other half of, I think, what you're talking about is this tendency to linger on quieter moments throughout the show. Mm -hmm. Two people sitting in silence, a sigh, someone looking off into the distance. How much of your approach to storytelling is informed by Miyazaki's use of Ma in his films? Oh my God, Sam. This is, I was literally about to bring that up. (laughs) You've listened to the show? (laughs) Yeah, I'm weirded out. It's never been pointed towards me. No, 100%. I I bring this up all the time. I just think, you know, Miyazaki is someone I've just followed my entire life. You know, his his movies were my favorites when I was a kid. And I I just think 
there's something about the way he perceives time that really resonates with me. How do you mean? Well, the concept he's talking about with Ma is the space between things, right? And so it's not the, the subject or the action that you're focusing on. It's it's the moments between. In Japanese, that word means space. And, and I think that's when it feels the most candid, you know, because it's between action that you can sort of prescribe meaning to. And for the show, you know, it just came naturally. You know, it was never like a thesis from the start, but... The moments we love the most in the editing room are moments of them in the couch before the characters walk in or moments after a character walks out and it just earns sitting on the couch. It just felt the most honest. Miyazaki talks about this in an interview in 2002. He says, if you just have nonstop action with no breathing space at all, it's just busyness. But if you take a moment, then the tension building in the film can grow into a wider dimension. If you just have constant tension at 80 degrees all the time, you get numb. Miyazaki said that back in 2002. But 20 years later, do you think viewers have become more numb by the way television and films are made today? I think so. It's hard to quantify negative space. You know, it's, it's hard to appreciate the lack of something. And so, you know, when you make something in a commercial space, I, I think it's really difficult to try to protect those moments, you know, because it's not seemingly adding anything to the moment. And so when you're making things from a place of fear or, oh, we're going to lose, we're going to lose viewers, mm. you know, I, I think you start making things from a very sort of additive place as opposed to a subtractive space. It's like someone who's nervous and can't stop talking and you're kind of diluting what you want to say in the first place. It's weird. You kept looking at me when you were saying that. <laughs> I would say you're the exact opposite of this. You use negative space very well. Hey, we got to get all the jokes we can here because it's it's early. <laughs> it's early. <laughs> um, you mentioned falling in love with Miyazaki as a child. You're born in Tokyo in the early 80s. At age nine, you immigrate to Los Angeles with your family. Come 1992, when you're here, I'm trying to imagine you walking around the city with a Japanese to English dictionary, making sense or trying to make sense of the world around you. What was that time like? Looking back on it, I'm just impressed with the capacity of a nine-year-old to just sort of assimilate and adapt. But yeah, it was a strange thing. I mean, you know, just completely changing the cultural context from which you came from is is such a strange thing. And, you know, we we moved to L.A. when... The riots were happening and early 90s American culture was a very strange place. You know, I mean, it's just out of context. It's just strange. I, I specifically remember walking by a poster for a Hulk Hogan movie where he plays a nanny. I just couldn't understand why this really muscular, balding guy was a movie star and starring in a movie where he was a nanny. You know what I mean? And, and look, I think many people had that question. <laughs> well, look, in, in context of American pop culture, it makes total sense. That poster out of its proper context is nonsense. And it was to me at the moment is a lot of that, you know, and, and you try to understand the context of it. And knowing that you just there's just certain things that you just don't know. You said you were impressed by your capacity to assimilate. Mm. What were you thinking about when you said that? By the way, your arms crossed the moment we started talking about coming here at age nine. <laughs> I'm feeling very vulnerable, I guess. Um, 
No, I, I, I guess I, I was like sympathizing as if it was a different person, I guess. I mean, in many ways it was. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's also, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I'm just sort of looking back, sympathizing and heartened by the fact that I got through this sort of big life change. Do you remember ever feeling homesick? Yeah, all the time. I think that's partly why I clinged on to so much Japanese films and TV shows at the time, just because it, it just felt like a taste of something familiar. Uh, there used to be this video store that would, thinking, looking back on it, it was probably illegal, uh, would film all these TV shows on VHS and they would rent them out, you know? So every week you could go there and just catch up on the newest shows. And yeah, it felt like a weird lifeline from life that I left behind. At what point did you feel like you found your bearings? You know, I, <laughs> this sounds dramatic. I don't know if I ever did. I've sort of found myself comfortable in a position of being slightly outside. You know, it happens in both directions. I think this happens a lot with immigrant kids where the place you came from start to become foreign as well. You lose your language a little bit. Your extended family members know you slightly less. It's sort of this vantage point that you don't get unless you've kind of bifurcated your life post and pre-immigration. Come high school, when you're a teenager, mm -hmm. feeling like this outsider, it seems to me that you turn to art as a kind of way station. Yeah. But you have this quote sort of about this. You said, I think because I'm a first generation immigrant, there's always been a sense that I'm on the outside looking in. It's weird to grow up around not that many people who look like you. And so I listened to hip hop and embraced black culture, probably because it was outsider art. I didn't have any culture of my own to cling on to in America. Did that feel alienating? Yeah. Not to minimize my own experience, but, you know, I think that it's that's a common experience for everybody in high school. You know, you're sort of trying to find your place. And I think my sort of lostness was definitely compounded by the fact that until nine years old, I, I lived an entirely different life. I think you're right in that I kind of looked to art to sort of find common ground, you know, and an understanding with the people around me. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point. And market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event 
where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first-ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. In high school, when you started making those short films, the biggest influence seemed to be the Coen brothers. Was that true? I would say Coen's, and then I was obsessed with the Takeshi Kitano mm-hmm. from the from the late '90s. What were those early films like? <laughs> uh, very weird, very wordless, because I couldn't write dialogue to save my life. So it was a lot of like quiet, meaningful, staring, kind of absurdist conceit. It's funny when you walked in here. That was actually the premise you had for this podcast. <laughs> Just wordless. That would have been more comfortable for me, for sure. You know, I actually know that's true. (laughs) And I'm sorry that I've had to force you to produce words. No, no, no. Incredibly happy to be here. I was like, if you (laughs) want to take these words, you can can have them. (laughs) I don't know if you ever thought about this. Do you feel like you flock to the Coen brothers in part because their films are often centered around outsiders grappling with the absurdity of the world around them? Yes. And this is something I've, I've just recently realized is all their films are about put upon weirdos who are kind of faced with the absurdities of the world and flailing. You know, every conversation is sort of framed like this confrontation. You know, it's like a battle, but 
there's nothing on the surface that feels antagonistic. It's just sort of this like creeping existential feeling. It sounds like a show I know. <laughs> can't quite pinpoint it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that I, I think you're absolutely right. There's something about that experience that felt, their worldview felt really familiar to me. Although you did find kinship in their work, as far as I understand, nothing about you growing up in Los Angeles felt like you were flailing mm. because you study film at USC. You sort of fall in love with music videos by way of Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry, both of whom are redefining what these videos can be and look like. So once you graduate around 2006, you dive headfirst into this format, directing pieces for Block Party, The Fray, Usher. You're in your late to mid-20s. You say freelance filmmaking can be pretty lonely, a chaotic endeavor without a support system. Looking back, I'm pretty impressed with how recklessly optimistic my friends and I all were. This may sound silly, but what made you so recklessly optimistic? I don't think I knew any better. I, I knew that I just didn't really know how to do anything else. <laughs> it's, it's true, you know, it's, I, I think... There's also this sense of community in that music video scene at that time that just felt like we were all sort of trying to get each other excited and compete with each other. And none of us were making any money, you know, because it's music videos. It's you're basically paying out of pocket to make these things, you know, but they mean something to you. That's the only way you can make something because it's just so hard. Otherwise, you can't just phone it in because you would fail. And so there's something about that that felt really sort of energizing and it just felt like there was enough creative momentum there that it would become something but you know i didn't understand the commerce of filmmaking i you know there's no reason why i should have believed that but there's something about that time that felt very vibrant was the commerce of filmmaking just not on your mind no of course it was but you think about it on those in a very sort of granular term you go i have to pay rent i have to pay rent so i have to do this many jobs to pay rent you know, I was making music videos, but I was also camera operating for live shows. And, you know, I was storyboarding and doing anything even remotely related. You know, I was doing VFX too, anything remotely related to filmmaking, just because it just felt, you know, any way to keep this lifestyle going. What did your parents think of what you were doing? Shockingly supportive. Your dad's an artist. My dad is an artist. I think that's that's why. I think in some ways he sort of romanticized the struggle. But uh, yeah, I guess I'm shocked because like they didn't know. <laughs> they didn't know where that was going to lead to because like, I didn't. And I, I think part of being in your 20s is just sort of being able to just follow through on your sort of reckless whims and see where they take you. Some of the earliest works where it seemed like you managed to do what you fell in love with in those Spike Jones videos, which is basically where the director's voice merges with the musician's voice, comes in 2012, 2013. It was around then that you made this video for Earl Sweatshirt for the song Chum. Before we play a clip from it, what do you remember about that piece? I remember meeting Tebe Earl, and you know he was 16 at the time, and he was going through this very sort of tumultuous moment in time where he was in boarding school and Odd Future crew was blowing up and there was this insane sort of anticipation for his return, you know, and he was sort of being touted as the next great lyricist. And he just had this sort of 
wiser than his years presence to him, but also just an overwhelmed 16-year-old. And his music, it, it just touched me. You know, it, it just felt like it was touching on sort of this anxious, depressive, tumultuous feeling that he was trying to work out. And I, ju- I just sort of latched onto that. Why don't we uh, take a look for a second? Cool. It's probably been 12 years since my father left. I left me fatherless. And I just used to say I hate him in dishonest chest. When honestly I miss this nigga like when I was six. And every time I got the chance to say it, I would swallow it. 16, I'm hollow and tolerant. Skip shots of storm. That whole bottle, I show you a role model. Drunk, pissy, pissing on somebody front lawn. Trying to figure out how and when the fuck I miss moderate. Wow. Still pretty good. Yeah, holds up. <laughs> wow. Okay. What do you got there? These are storyboards and timeline breakdowns of the Chum video. Sam, you're scary. <laughs> like that video or? <laughs> no, more in like a, are you standing behind me at all times kind of way? All on your Tumblr. <laughs> oh, I forgot that I had a Tumblr. When you're looking at that storyboard for this video, mm-hmm. does it take you back to that time? Yeah. I was really sort of trying to pick at this feeling of anxiety and depression, I think. And I think there was something about that song that kind of, I found an entryway into trying to get that emotion out. I was also laughing just watching that video because, uh, <laughs> I mean, Earl looks so young, but also it was reminding me, there's a moment in the video where he's hanging upside down and we put these gravity boots on him. So he's hanging, you know, uh, upside down, like 12 feet in the air in the middle of a parking lot in the middle of the night. And he just was like, you know, I'm going through a lot right now. I just, I can't do this right now. I remember going like, right, right. He's he's in the middle of it. And I'm just asking this dude to to rap while upside down, hanging 12 feet off of the ground. In the parking lot in the of parking a 99 lot. cent store. Exactly, exactly. Throughout these videos, but especially that one, you found your entry point into the anxiety and depression of the piece. Did you feel... Any of that in your late 20s? Oh, 100%. I've fought off anxiety and depression my entire adult life, I think. And I think a good chunk of my film work is trying to pick apart those feelings. Especially in my late 20s, it was, I wasn't even sure what I was feeling. You know, I was just trying to put like a tangible shape to it. I think I was trying to find the words and the language for it. Do you have the words now? Yeah, more so. I'm also in a more stable place than I was in my late 20s, which I, you know, you should hope that you can get that in the 10 years that's passed. So when you look at it from this vantage point a decade later, Mm -hmm. what was the anxiety or depression about? I think it has probably a lot to do with just uncertainty, Mm. you know, and, and that's encompassing everything, you know, work, life, interpersonal relationships, my place in whatever work I'm doing. And just feeling disconnected from people. Moving back to the whole outsider thing, I, I think, you know, I was always trying to figure out how I was supposed to interface with the worlds that I didn't belong in. I think you need a grounding space to feel stable. And I, I think, I don't think I, I had that back then, you know. And so the one place I found some, some kind of stability was in making things that sort of defined what that felt like. And in doing that, you created refuge for anyone who wanted to watch and see themselves in that, which I very much did as a senior in high school 
anxiously watching the Chum video or your piece for Frank Ocean. And it's that piece with Frank that ended up being Donald Glover's entry point into your work, right? Mm -hmm. Once you two decide to start working together, you make a short film called Clapping for the Wrong Reasons, a handful of music videos for Because the Internet, and then eventually landing on Atlanta in 2016. Over the years, people have asked you endlessly to explain why you and Donald work so well together. And I think if you could explain that, that the magic would probably dissipate. So I'm not going to ask that question. <laughs> but a few years back, when Donald was asked about why he's found a kinship with you, this is what he said. I think we both have our issues with being alone or just feeling like an alien at some level. When I was a child, you could tell me on this day, the sun rises twice and I'd believe you because at six or seven years old, anything is possible. That's a beautiful thing and it can be magic, but it can also be really scary. And I think Hero and I never really forgot that. <laughs> wow. That's very Donald. I love that. That rings really true. It's also very funny because, I, I, you know, Donald and I have spent so much time together, but we never really talk about why our partnership has worked. I think, you know, we just kind of learned through the process of making things that every time we did something together, both of our ideas got better. And it's like chemistry. It's alchemy. You don't want to over explain it. You just do the thing. You know that you get enjoyment out of the process and then you enjoy the outcome. But I think that's really well put. You know, I, I've <laughs> I've joked with them in the past that like we had the same nightmare when we were a child and we've been trying to figure out what that was our entire careers. But I think that's a much better, uh, <laughs> a much better way to put it. You know, I, I think we do have a little bit of a removal from the world. And I, I think we're introspective to a dangerous degree, <laughs> you know, and so we're kind of constantly negotiating ourselves with our surroundings. I think that's kind of our connection point. It's funny, when I was reading that quote from Donald, you responded so viscerally to it. I could see it in your in your body. Yeah, I guess I was really touched. I felt kind of seen, I guess. It was also sort of interesting to kind of hear him frame our relationship in that way because it, it feels very true, but it's something that we never really talk about. It must be strange to hear those words in a publication. <laughs> <laughs> but never in person. Yeah, you know, it kind of it almost feels like I'm sitting at my own funeral hearing <laughs> Donald eulogize me or something, where it feels like deeply personal, but I also shouldn't be hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you just described talk easy. So <laughs> I love that. I want to focus back on the show for a second. There's a scene toward the end of this first episode of season four. Once the scavenger hunt leads Paperboy to the funeral of a rapper, just weird coincidence, he sits down with the wife of that rapper. Why don't we watch some of that scene for a second? Mm -hmm. Oh, are you hungry? Oh, no, no. Um, I have something to eat on the way over there. Oh, right. The zoo pie. <laughs> I promised him I'd run the funeral. You're the fifth person to show up. Damn, really? <laughs> yeah, I think he expected more people. 
I'm actually surprised too. I mean, all you had to do was listen to the album. Yeah. He put so much effort into it, but I guess you don't always get back what you give. He just worked so hard. And I just wish he had had more fun. Because that's all it is in the end. <laughs> Those lines, she said. He put so much effort into it. I guess you don't always get back what you give. He just works so hard. And I just wish he had more fun. Because that's all it is in the end. After sprinting for the last decade, as you have. And with Atlanta coming to an end. I wondered if those lines were on your mind. Yeah, a, a lot, actually. We sort of reworked those lines uh, while we were in the editing room. You know, I, I think we're, we're overthinkers as a, as a collective, and we make ourselves sick trying to make something as good as we can. And I think our mission statement for the season was, let's do something for us, you know? Let's do something that, that we get enjoyment out of and hope that that's enough. And so it almost acts as a, as a thesis for the season in some way. You make yourself sick doing the show. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I told you I'm on so much antibiotics right now. <laughs> what were the antibiotics for? Um, this is disgusting. Do you want to hear it? Hey, we've heard everything else. <laughs> I got some uh, abscess in my nose and body. You know what? Next thing. So one <laughs> <laughs> You're catching me on a good day. Let's say that. You look great. Thank you. Thank you. You should see me normally. Well, you can come back tomorrow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 8 a.m.? Yeah, 8 a.m. Okay, Perfect start time. Um, Is making yourself sick the only way you know how to make art? I hope not. I'm doing it right now. Making yourself sick. Yeah. I do think for something to be good, you have to care too much about it. You know, and things are only as good as you're willing to care about it and put your emotional energy into it. I think the hardest thing is knowing when you put in enough. And I think that regulation is what I'm still working on, trying to figure out how to balance better. As you try to balance it better in this next chapter of yours, now that you've done all that you've done, you got like, what, five Emmy nominations? <laughs> Do you feel any responsibility to create the kind of art you didn't have growing up? The kind of art where you may have been able to see yourself? Absolutely. I do. And I hope to. I think I'm getting to a point where I feel more comfortable being more literal about my own life and how it reflects on the, th the, the things that I make. I guess I'm, I'm getting more comfortable showing myself, I guess. Why is that? I, I think I'm more comfortable with myself than I used to be. I wanted to show my feelings, but I didn't want to show myself. Mm. I mean, I'm probably going to be that way till the day I die, honestly. Now you want to try to do both. Yeah, I think so. As you do try to do both, directing in all kinds of formats, you've equated being at the helm to being on a stepladder with your head sticking up through a hole, looking into an attic, and you're seeing something that nobody else can see, and it's your job as a director to tell the 80 people on the level below you how to recreate it. If I were to change that quote, I would say, rather than a stepladder, I am on the shoulders of the 80 people below me. I can't see what's in the attic without the collaborators and 
creative team that I've I've kind of gotten to work with. That makes it feel like it's a solo venture and it's certainly not. You know, film production doesn't function unless you completely trust everybody on your team and they're all working for the same goal that you are. However you get up there, whether it's on the shoulders or on a stepladder, I guess my question is, do you still fall in love with looking up in the attic? Yeah, I I think it's probably the oldest part of me. You know, I, I think that's that's when I feel most like a kid. That's the easiest place to access for me. I think what I'm learning how to do in my adult life is balance that looking in the attic with talking to the people underneath the attic. <laughs> it's the oldest part of you. Yeah. Always the easiest place for me to go. You know, if I didn't want to be somewhere, I would just fly away in my brain and I could spend hours just inside my own brain. It's like you growing up daydreaming and doodling as you did. Yeah. How old are you now? I'm 39. 39. Well, my last question. At 39, you seem to still be following that childlike instinct to dream, to build worlds, to do the things that please you. And I wondered if part of that guiding philosophy comes from the end of this book by George Saunders called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. I have it here. If you may want to read from it. Sure. The closest thing to a method I have to offer is this. Go forth and do whatever you please. It really is true. Doing what you please, i.e. what pleases you with energy, will lead you to everything, to your particular obsession and the way in which you will indulge them, to your particular challenges, and the forms in which they'll convert into beauty, to your particular obstructions and your highly individualized obstruction breakers. We can't know what our writing problems will be until we write our way into them. And then we can only write our way out. He's the greatest. Does that sound like how you want to carry forward? Yeah. You know, I, I I never really thought of it this way, but so much of art making is is you're, you're just figuring out where you end and where the rest of the world begins, you know? And, and you're just sort of like pushing yourself against an obstruction until you find out where you start and where the rest of the world ends, you know? That line feels really, really viscerally true. And and it's only something that I've sort of realized in the last couple months, too. I never really understood why we were making things. (laughs) You're just kind of following a compulsion, you know? But I'm starting to see a purpose for the hardship. For the sickness. For the sickness. Well, I hate that you get so sick (laughs) in making these things, but I want to thank you for... uh following that compulsion after all these years. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I mean, this is just incredible. Are you more comfortable with my voice as we're ending? I am. I am. Now I'm going to picture you every time I hear this podcast, I think. Please do not do that. (laughs) Do not do that. Hugh Mirai, it's been a true pleasure and uh, best of luck with the rest of this season and everything else to follow. Thank you so much, Sam. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, wow. We okay? Yeah, I'm good. That was a... <laughs> it's funny. It's like uh, watching close hand magic, honestly. <laughs>
And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Maria Herrera and Izzy Kantz at Herrera Re-Strategies, Chang An, and of course, Hiro Murai. The first two episodes of the fourth and final season of Atlanta are out now on FX and Hulu. To learn more about Hiro and his work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd recommend our conversations with Steven Soderbergh, Chinixa Bravo, Bill Hader, Questlove, Miranda July, Ethan Hawke, Lena Dunham, and George Saunders. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com shop. If you want to support us in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the program with a friend. The second best thing you can do is rate this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Reviewing the program on these platforms, even just giving us five stars, is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sobravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was engineered by Tim Moore out of York Recording in Los Angeles. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs this week are by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Billy Eichner. Until then. Stay safe and so on. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.